Empty Frames is an independent production. The commentary expressed here is our own and does not reflect the opinions of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum or its staff. To learn more about the museum, including the 1990 theft, please visit the museum's website at www.isgm.org. If you have any critical information relating specifically to the 1990 theft, please contact the museum's security director via the options provided on the museum's website. The museum continues to offer a reward totaling $10 million for information that can lead to the return of the stolen artwork. We are bothered by the loss the art world suffered in 1990, and we are not content with the status quo. I just want to highlight here the Rembrandts. There were three of them. There was a storm on the Sea of Galilee, a lady and gentleman in black, and a self-portrait. We started this podcast to raise awareness of the theft and to show our support for the ongoing recovery efforts. While those recovery efforts progress as they do daily, we encourage our listeners to visit the museum, to appreciate its incredible collection, both past and present, and to donate directly to the museum through its website. Again, if you enjoy this podcast and you feel as we do about the missing artwork, the most productive way for you to express your view is to donate directly to the Gardner Museum via its website. Go to isgm.org and look for the Join and Give tab, where there are options to make a donation of any size to support the museum's mission. Please donate today. And when you do, let us know on Twitter so we can personally thank you there. Thanks again. On March 18, 1990, the most audacious art heist of all time took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Two men dressed as police officers were admitted into the building by security, claiming to be responding to a disturbance call. In 81 minutes, 13 pieces of art were stolen. Among the portraits stripped from their frames were works by Vermeer, Degas, and Rembrandt. Estimated at half a billion dollars, the heist has been categorized as the largest and most frustrating of all time. Theories of their whereabouts and those who perpetrated the crime are abundant. In this podcast series, we will dig as deep as possible into the case, the theories, and the social and economic impact the greatest unsolved art heist of all time had on the community. This is Empty Frames, a heist story. Welcome back to Empty Frames. I'm Tim here with Lance. How are you, Lance? I'm doing very well. Very excited for this episode that we have coming up for our listeners. Yeah, we talked to best-selling author Ulrich Boser, who wrote a great book called The Gardner Heist. So pick that one up on Amazon or wherever books are sold. And this episode was brought to you by our generous sponsors, Serial Box, FrameBridge, and ZipRecruiter. So one of the things we use the intro space for is to correct any mistakes we may have made from previous episodes or to update any information. And we do want to note that we're going to get really detailed into the night of the robbery in a future episode. I know we got some tweets and emails about the guards being tied up and the way they were tied up. 
So just to let you know, we're going to get into that. We're going to get into the Dodge Daytona, which might have been the getaway car, and more in future episodes. So please keep listening. All right, Tim, let's get into this interview with Ulrich Bozer. Um, I found it fascinating. I know you found it fascinating, and I'm sure the listeners are going to find it equally as fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us here on uh, on Empty Frames. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the book that you wrote based on the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. Uh, it's a fascinating case, um, an amazing case, really, right? Because so much uh, time and effort has gone by. There's a currently a five million dollar reward for these paintings. My family could live simply off of the interest, and yet these paintings have not come back. Now, that $5 million reward was originally $10 million. That expired at the end of 2017, so it reverted back to that $5 million that it once was, right? If, if we're going to geek out, it originally was, was zero. Uh, so when the museum was robbed, they did not have any insurance. So one of the benefits of, of having insurance is that the insurance companies will put up rewards. So shortly after the theft occurred, um, a reward was put up. Um, then it was raised from $1 million to $5 million. Then for a short period of time, they raised it to $10 million and, and raised it back down again. Actually, the reward is back to $10 million again. Uh, we recorded this interview with Ulrich in the early part of January, and it has since gone from 5 back to 10 Okay, and that is for the recovery of all 13 works, all, all, all of the property stolen in good condition. Yeah, that's correct. I don't know if it's true or maybe I've just like imagined in my own mind, right, that there's this like piece of paper that's like you get the Vermeer, you get X, uh, Degas brings you Y. And it's interesting to me because I get starts to think about some of these bigger questions like do we want the artwork back? Are we just fascinated with the monetary value that's ascribed to it? What do, what do we really want when we think about this piece of culture that's that's lost? I agree and and I kind of have thought about that a lot too because what are the chances this artwork isn't ruined or I mean the robbery is going to be stained on the artwork even if it were to be recovered. Yeah, so one question is is the art in good condition? I think that the answer to that is, is yes, it is in good condition. I believe that when you look at all the evidence, it most likely appears that the people who stole these artworks were not art connoisseurs, but certainly knew that they were stealing something valuable in the same way that they would not put the paintings on a, or if they stole money, you know, put it um, on a big campfire and let it go up into flames, that they would know that you know these paintings need to be stored someplace safe. At the same time, we know for sure that the paintings suffered some damage. Some of them were, were cut out of their frames. And we also know that the New England area is a particularly bad place to store paintings in a shed uh, or in an attic, which is where I suppose that they are. You, know, you have very hot summers and very cold winters, and those types of fluctuations are very, uh, very bad for, for paintings like this. Do you think that the thieves knew that they were taking something as valuable as the concert? It has been recorded as the most valuable piece of stolen property, I think, in uh, at least American history. Do you think that was uh, something that they looked at and they knew when they were taking it? Yes. Yeah, so when we really start to study the case, what we... Well, let me flip the question a little bit. 
please. There are more valuable paintings in that museum. The Botticelli is a more valuable painting. I believe that the thieves really had their eyes on the Rembrandt. If we just did a poll, right, of, of Americans and, and maybe sort of lower income Americans, I think the name Rembrandt or Van Gogh sort of resonates more than the name Vermeer. So I believe that they, they really went after the, the Rembrandts and uh, and then, you know, the Vermeers, the concert was just sort of taken out with that. Uh, and there's more evidence that we can talk about about why that's true. I, I clearly don't you know, know for sure what's remarkable about this case, even having written a, a book about it, is that I don't know. Right. I mean, any theory. Right. Whether it's a theory of some kooky person who emails me or I meet at a cocktail party or your theory, anyone's theories is as good as my theory. We don't know where those paintings are. And uh, when that's the case. Right. We just have to look at the evidence and say, you know, what what fits. What theory other than uh, your own do you think has the most merit? So in my book, I really put a lot of evidence on, on David Turner. Since then, I think there's more evidence that puts the that crew of individuals who um, operated out of TRC Auto and Electric, so Carmelo Merlino, that the paintings go down to Connecticut, which there is now seems to be a lot of evidence. So I'm, I may have been wrong on David Turner. Turner, we don't know again for sure, but I do believe that in that nest of of individuals is both the thieves who robbed the museum, as well as where the paintings went to afterwards. I think then the question is like, what other theories are out there? Um, I mean, many of the other theories can kind of get that I think are reasonable theories, right, can get wrapped up into this one. So you can connect Miles Connor, whose names often comes up. Once you talk about Miles Connor, you get to talk about Billy Youngworth. His name comes up. Uh, the Whitey Bulger angle, um, I don't believe, has a whole lot of evidence to it. And, and since he's now in prison and had he had a, a connection to the museum. Um, so that would be a second tier angle. There's the IRA angle, which I would sort of put a little bit with Whitey Bulger. I think there's less evidence for that. And then you get into, you get into sort of the, the fun and weird stuff, right? The like paintings were robbed from the museum, but never taken from the museum. They were actually cemented behind the walls is, is one that I've now actually heard once or twice. So, uh, do I lend any credence to that? No, the museum also did like a, a big rehab. So, you know, I, I would assume that they would find stuff in the walls like we all do when we rehab. But uh, you just you get into that that sort of lower tier of somewhere between kind of crockpot and, and mildly plausible. So Ulrich mentions a lot of names there. One of them is David Turner, who he wrote in his book that he was pretty convinced uh, had a role. And I would agree. And basically every bit of research I've done on this seems like David Turner was one of the people involved that night. He also mentions Miles Connor, who is a notorious Boston career criminal. Also mentions Whitey Bulger and the IRA angle, which we will get into a little bit later. And Carmelo Merlino, who also, I would say, along with David Turner, almost definitely had some role in this. Yeah, we start talking about David Turner, and he is really right up there in the uh, top echelon of Boston criminals, especially back in the 80s and 90s. He was also sentenced to 38 years in prison for the 1999 uh, attempted robbery of the uh, of an armored car in Easton. So he's uh, he's expected to be freed 
in 2025 because his sentence was reduced. And we get into that with Ulrich a little bit as well. Yeah, he got a 38-year sentence for an armored car robbery. Um, and then that sentence was reduced in 2016 by seven years. And his attorney, the FBI, and the U.S. Attorney's Office have all declined to comment on why. Uh, what, what do you think about that? I have I have no idea, um, you know, what what happened and the, the you know reduction. What I know about David Turner is this. He will go down, I believe, in Boston history alongside other really remarkable criminals. Right. So like the Boston Strangler, Whitey Bulger, I mean, he's at, at that level of of theft. So one thing that he did was rob the Bull and Finch pub, uh, which was the bar that was uh, the basis for Cheers. That son of a bitch. <laughs> what would Norm say? <laughs> um, he, um, you know, was called the sort of Teflon Don of Boston because he was caught for a number of other both murders and, and house robberies. He got off of them. The armored car robbery that he was in prison for would have been the largest armored car robbery in American history had he been successful at it. Um, and when I reached out to him, you know, as part of the reporting for my book, he he bragged in a way. He said that his picture should be on the, the cover of my book. And now we ask Ulrich about an inside angle. Specifically, we're speaking of the security guard Richard Abbott when we're talking about the inside angle because he's the most prominent guard and his picture's out there. And that's one of the first things that you think of, one of the first things you see when you do research on this. Here's what we can say, I think, with a high degree of confidence. Someone on the inside helped the thieves. I feel like the evidence is very clear for that and we can walk down what it is. But from the fact that the thieves stayed in the museum for so long, that they robbed a very specific corner of the museum, taking a security tape from the security office's room, and the fact that generally these museum robberies have some type of, of inside angle. So, okay, so the thieves had an inside angle. Cool. I, I think we have a high degree of evidence that. Then the question is, like, was he their inside angle? Evidence there is is mixed. Uh, from news reports, we can say that one of the guards was brought in front of a grand jury, and a grand jury did not, you know, go forward with the case. So we can sort of think, like, well, the case was actually not enough to uh, get past a grand jury. Grand juries actually t tend to just like rubber stamp everything. And when you look at the evidence, you know, that uh, implicates him, I mean, it is it is more circumstantial. Uh, some of it is just that he's a kooky character and kooky characters don't necessarily produce thefts. They just might be a little kooky. What we know also, he told the police is that he just like hummed, I shall be released. Like that's what kept him. That's what kept him through the night, which on one side, I appreciate the like poeticness of it. But then you're also like, how did he know that he would be released, right? Abbott admitted later to smoking weed on the job. A few months before, they threw a New Year's Eve party in the museum. So I just want to, like, take a step back, right? Like, we've all had jobs in college and high school that you didn't, like, take that seriously. And maybe you goofed around a little bit on the side, but they invited friends in to arguably one of the most beautiful museums in the world and had a New Year's Eve party. I mean, that's, that's an incredible thing. But at the same time, we have to make clear that I don't think that the Gardner Museum had worse security than 
a lot of other you know museums in that that time and place and and if we look back to the 1990s and at robberies there were a lot of other places that had you know pretty pretty weak security so I know, Tim, that one one aspect of this whole thing that you've been particularly interested in that kind of stuck, uh, you know, kind of stuck out to you was the uh, guard that called out sick. I uh, thought that was awfully suspicious that a guard called in sick the night of the robbery. It does seem suspicious, but when you zoom out a little bit, it was St. Patrick's Day. I'm sure he wasn't the first person to call out sick in Boston on St. Patrick's Day from his job. How did the thieves know that disturbances had already happened in the museum that night. Like uh, when, when they, the thieves dressed as cops knocked on the door, they said, we're here about the disturbance in the courtyard. How did they know there was a disturbance in the courtyard? Is it just a random coincidence they got that right? My point is I, I'm, I'm just confused on how those the thieves knew about the disturbance. I mean, I, I just, you know, my, my, my mind wanders like... Uh, oh, you, you think it's like more connected to the... Um... That they had an inside connection. I mean, yes. there's so much evidence to some sort of inside connection. If, if I mean, I, I agree with you, right? So there's, um, there's that. Uh, then there's the frame of the Degas was left behind on the the security guard seat in this way. That's really like a, a like a fuck you to the like whoever first entered the museum. Um, anyway, there's all sorts of other evidence, but yeah, that's, you know, one of, one of many. It's also like, why would you just let them in without any like real questioning? There's okay. So you guys are sitting right there. You guys are, you know, sitting down and, and imagine yourself like being that guard. And there's just really a table in front of you. And these, you know, two cops come towards you. Like when you stand up and kind of like move back, I mean, the idea that they just like, he just like gets up and then they just, you know, immediately able to, you know, put the handcuffs on him strikes me as a little weird, you know, how does that all, um, exactly takes place. So yeah, just so many questions about how exactly that, that all happens. Also the security tapes were taken from the, from the museum as well. Uh, so that, you know, we'll never know how that actually went down, but how did they even know where that was? You know, is there is there a room, unless I missed something, is there a room that says, like, security on the door that they went in and, you know, they easily knew? Again, maybe I'm too influenced by media where it's a wall of, you know, like a hard drive and yeah. you're pulling, you know, like floppy disks out. Well, but funny was, you said hard drive because they actually didn't know about the hard drive. Right. And right. didn't yeah. take that part. Uh, I've always been thought of it as, like, you know, the principal's office, you know, like in school, you were like, you knew where it was, but you did, you were never allowed in there. And certainly you would never know to like go into the second left drawer where he kept the, you know, the skeleton key that would have unlocked the tests and analogies kind of going off the rails. But <laughs> I love it. I think the end point, right, is that they I don't know if it said security on it, but what we know for sure is that they kind of go this kind of back corner into this room that was devoted to security. They go in and. They don't take anything else out of that room, like no loose change, you know, God knows what else was in there. They just take this tape that they believe, um, you know, contained their movements uh, through the museum. And that to me is is one is the strongest bit of evidence that they had some inside connection. Right. Going back to the principal analog. Right. You know where the principal's room is. But like, do you know in what desk? And you, they weren't clearly weren't like rifling through the whole thing. They knew that thing. You uh, detailed in your book about how the IRA kind of has an obsession with Vermeers in particular. What are the chances you think the IRA has the Vermeer from the Gardner? I would bet like a very small amount of money that that's the case. The IRA, um, 
certainly stole one Vermeer and, and used it as this type of um, political bargaining chip. So actually, per Ulrich's book, the IRA, Irish Republic Army, had a sort of devotion for Vermeers, and they had swiped paintings by the old Dutch master on at least three occasions, the biggest one being in 1974. And if you believe in the IRA angle, you likely would believe in the Whitey Bulger angle, or that Whitey Bulger at least had control of one of the paintings. One of the paintings being the concert by Vermeer, because Whitey Bulger is connected to the, well, basically was the Irish Mafia. So you have the IRA, the Irish Mafia, and you have their fascination uh, with Vermeer's. So it's not a, it's not really a stretch. Whitey Bulger was arrested in 2011, and you put, your book was published in 2009. So what was the days after his arrest like for you? Yeah, so one was just like total fascination, right? Like, this is, this is crazy uh, that he was arrested. By the time I'd finished the research for the book, and, and, and certainly even while like the book was getting published, it was just like more and more clear to me that the, there wasn't much of a Whitey Bulger angle. And really, my thought went to the Gardner paintings, but in a different way. And that is, you know, the public is key. There is an advertisement that was in a hair salon, right? Or it was, excuse me, it may not have been an advertisement, it was something like right up in a hair salon. And that was the thing that got him caught. And so in my mind, there's a, a clear analog with the Gardner case. It's going to be, whether it's a podcast like this or a newspaper article there or a TV show that uh, broadcasts in Saskatchewan, these are the like things that some random person is going to see and be like, wait a second. And so my thought, you know, it really went to the Gardner paintings because it's these types of public efforts, just making sure that the media always covers this. You know, there's an ancillary point here is that, you know, if, if you speak to like someone in like crisis communications, right? So, um, you know, uh, uh, you're like, you know, Harvey Weinstein, they'd be like, get all the information negative out at one point in time, right? And then like the media like feeds on it and then they go away, right? The Gardner case is actually the opposite, right? It's like every few months, there's like a little trickle of information and like, you know, make the, the cover of the Boston Globe. And, you know, for the case, that's good for the Gardner Museum. Uh, it makes them look bad in the short term, but I think that it's credit to them for willing to put so much forth to get these paintings back. Now, since this interview, we actually spoke with a member, a former member of the FBI, who actually was one of the people who was on the task force who brought down Whitey Bulger. And we asked him flat out if he mentioned the Gardner art at all. And what did he say, Lance? And wisely and probably, you know, legally, he said that he couldn't comment on that uh, on that question. He couldn't answer that. He directed us to the uh, media uh, personnel at the FBI. He didn't work on the heist. He didn't work on the Isabella Stewart Gardner heist. He worked on the Whitey Bulger case. And any information that he could provide would have to be cleared by the FBI. But couldn't he just have said no if if he and Whitey didn't talk about the paintings? I mean, we're talking about a guy who was in the FBI that like he was a career FBI agent and. He's not giving a yes or no to anything. What's your response to those who uh, might have information about anything having to do with the theft? Yeah, I think people need to, to come forward. We know that it's the public that's going to help return these paintings. We've seen a lot of cases where it takes uh, years, decades, centuries for artworks to come back. So we need people to come forward. Um, you know, 
we might be talking and and you know make light of um you know a couple of theories like that the paintings are stored in the basement of the museum you know in, in behind the drywall but it is really important that people you know if they just heard a, a, a small tidbit over coffee if you know they were reminded of the next door neighbor growing up you know these are the types of things that uh, will make a case like this break open Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. In August of 1997, Boston journalist Tom Mashberg wrote a now infamous article in the Boston Herald with the headline, We've Seen It! Exclamation point. A year later, he wrote an article in Vanity Fair in which he goes even further in detail about his experience with William Youngworth and being shown the storm on the Sea of Galilee in a warehouse. How deep have you looked into that? Yes, so he was taken into a warehouse and he saw what he believed to be an excellent replica. I think that's usually even the term that he used, an excellent replica or something like that. So we don't know that he saw the actual storm on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, When I spoke to Tom, what he said was, it wasn't actually the painting that was so intriguing to him. Someone also sent him at that time, 17th century Dutch uh, paint chips. And like, Let's be clear, uh, and, and Tom made this point, right? I mean, it's not that hard to get a copy of The Storm in the Sea of Galilee and with a couple of flashlights in a, in a warehouse kind of, you know, bring a reporter in for two seconds, be like, you see this, and then kind of like toss them out. Paint chips from like Dutch, you know, masters, like that's actually, you know, that takes some genuine effort. I, I wouldn't, uh, well, now there's eBay. Maybe they're easier to get. But at that particular point in time, so uh, Tom's story is, uh, you know, one of these, you know, crazy stories uh, of this case, you know, for days, the, uh, you know, his newspaper was running headline after headline, it really seemed like these paintings were going to come back. And then, you know, we, we've got, we've got nothing. So there's some conflicting reports on this. It, it's really curious, Lance, and we've talked ad nauseum about it off the air. So William Youngworth supplied Mashberg some paint chips. Youngworth gave Mashberg a vial containing small paint chips to deliver to the FBI. Less than a month later, in separate statements from the museum and the FBI, the chips had not come from either of the two Rembrandts, as Youngworth said. And the photographs that Youngworth also sent in were not really original either. However... Neither statement mentioned what was really extremely interesting about this. The pigmentation and layering of the chips indicated that they had come from a 17th century painting, the time which Rembrandt had worked. And leading experts said they could not rule out the possibility that the chips came from the stolen Vermeer, a contemporary of Rembrandt. And then so Youngworth when told that the chips didn't match the storm in the Sea of Galley or, or the other Rembrandt, he said, well, they're from the Vermeer. That's what I said originally. Right. It seems that Red Lake, that particular pigment, was um, popular in the 1600s. Uh, the concert was between 1664 and 1666, and the Rembrandts 
Storm on the Sea of Galilee and A Lady and Gentleman in Black, those were 1633. So that is that was a popular pigment. So when you're thinking about them cutting them out of their frames and those paint chips falling on the floor, did someone like scoop them up or was it from as they're attempting to like fold them up or roll them up and they they had these paint chips, they put them in a vial to, um, you know, they had the, the, the pre-thought to say we can use these as proof without actually showing the paintings because where do you get paint chips from the 16, you know, 30s, 1650s? Well, Youngworth um, is an antiques dealer, so I don't know. I mean, he's he's involved in this world, so he probably could uh, get a painting like that, maybe a Vermeer or Rembrandt knockoff, and just kind of crunch it up and get the chips. But who knows? Who's, who knows? Who, who can say for sure what happened? Right, exactly. And even even back then, when Mashberg thought that he had seen the storm on the Sea of Galilee, He's in a dark warehouse and they're rolled up. That, that's another point of contention that we've talked about is that they that this painting is rolled up in a in a tube and he's shown these other tubes. And really, you, you start to look at the, these paintings have been treated so much and the canvases were were rigid. So we're talking about cardboard almost. So these things aren't really being rolled up and unrolled and and rolled back up again. Uh, if, if that's the case, then you're basically left with no painting on it because you're just going to keep cracking the paint off. But I can see where Tom Mashberg would be excited about it. He's a reporter for the Boston Herald. It's still new. You know, it's 1997. It's only seven years after the after the heist. So when he's taken to this warehouse in, in Red Hook, Brooklyn, by, by Youngworth, who's another career criminal, an associate to Miles Connor, uh, you can see where his excitement, his you know journalistic scoop would get the better of it. Well, I don't blame him either, Lance, and I'm not even convinced that what he saw wasn't or, or that Youngworth didn't have an, uh, the actual Vermeer. It could be that he had knowledge of where the paintings were had those paint chips from the actual paintings, had a replica of the Storm of the Sea of Galilee, showed him the replica, but didn't disclose where the actual original was. That's just me spitballing. Do you think the, uh, the 1994 Crime Act that uh, Senator Ted Kennedy uh, added... Do you think that that's like working against the potential that this artwork could be returned at this point? So there is this weird thing about this act. So the statute of limitations of robbery, you're good. You're clean. After the theft, uh, due to the fact that, you know, Kennedy was a big supporter of the arts, the Gardner Museum sort of historical place in, in Boston, he put into the Crime Act this uh, language and if you read the language, it's it's basically like if any very valuable item gets moved, or you even know about the valuable item uh, that's stolen, you could get prosecuted under it. So, the bottom line is, and people often ask this question: you know, Could you even get prosecuted? The answer to that is yes, you could under that act get prosecuted. But the FBI, all the lawyers I've spoken to, have made it very clear they are not looking for a uh, prosecution in this particular point in time. I really have no doubt about that. You know, if you had a, a reasonably good lawyer and you knew where these paintings are or were, you'd walk away with that that cash. But it seems like a theme from some of the, the people that, that you wrote about that they are afraid that that's not true, that they're afraid that uh, they're lying and that they're desperate to lock somebody up for this. Yeah, I mean, paintings were stolen. It is something that is, you know, incredible. It's 
uh, more than just sort of like a, an interesting narrative. I think an incredible bit of culture was lost. But let's be clear that there are people who've done more heinous crimes that have negotiated down prison terms for killing people, killing multiple people. So on one side, like, yeah, they're afraid, but we can look at, gosh, I, I feel like I'm not going on a limb to say hundreds of thousands of cases of people who have done mean, ugly things and able to negotiate down uh, with, you know, a good lawyer and, and some, you know, uh, just thinking strategically. So I think those, you know, concerns are, they're not unreasonable, but I think you could get beyond them. I think the reason that we don't know where the paintings are goes to something implied in your question. That is, these are criminals and they're aging criminals. And when you start looking at these cases, David Turner, Carmelo Merlino, George Reisfelder, you know, a lot of these guys are dead or in prison or got murdered or died of a drug overdose, right? I mean, this you know case happened in, in 1990. What happens in a lot of cases, people steal the paintings and then they're like, oh, you know, there's some guy in the Caribbean who has like a glass of port and he looks at his like stolen Van Gogh late at night. There's no evidence for that, right? Nothing. But what we know is that that kind of idea, it inspires thieves. And so I believe they, they steal the paintings, they bring them back and they try and fence them in that way. And then they're like, no luck. They can't bring them to any like reputable art dealer. Right. I mean, like these hang in like all sorts of dorm rooms. So then what do they do with them? And there are different theories. You know, we, we can talk about that. Um, but, you know, they're in some degree. And I think Turbo, uh, the, the Irish guy, he, he talked about these paintings sometimes being an albatross around your neck. And, and that always was a, a vivid little expression. Right. You steal them, then you kind of don't don't know what to do with them. So there's some names coming at you there. Carmelo Merlino died in prison. George Reisfelder died in an apparent cocaine overdose in 1991. Yeah, he tosses a bunch of names out there, and it's all connected to the uh, the Boston mob war of the uh, 80s and 90s. Uh, one name that he doesn't mention is Bobby Donati in this particular clip. Bobby Donati is connected to the, to the heist and to Miles Connor and to Youngworth. And also in 1991, he was murdered. And the way he was murdered was clearly a, a mob hit. He was renting a place in Revere, and he left his house on September 21st and grabbed by a group of men. Three days later, they found his body in the trunk of a Cadillac uh, on Savage Street in Revere. He had been beaten over the head. He was stabbed like 20 times. His throat had been cut. So this was a this was an execution that people wanted to make sure he was not going to walk away from. And one more, Leonard DiMuzio was also shot to death in 1991, had long been involved with Carmelo Merlino's gang. So right after the robbery, a lot of people started getting dead, Lance. A lot of people started to reenact the uh, scene from Goodfellas where you're, you know, you open up the back of the uh, the frozen meat truck and there's Jimmy two times hanging from one of the one of the meat hooks while Eric Clapton plays in the background. It makes you wonder whether these people were killed because they were involved in the heist or they knew where the artwork was or, hey, maybe it didn't have anything to do with it. But it seems a little coincidental if that's the case. Exactly. When you look at the past of this uh this Boston mob war, so many names connected to the heist started getting collected in 1990 and 1991. But before then, was there any uh, was there ever a case where 
mob-connected individuals were so systematically executed? Yeah, I mean, I think there's one theory we can talk about a little bit more. It's it's one that's really intriguing to, to me. So Miles Connor, um, the Rembrandt from the Museum of Fine Arts, and then uses that to negotiate down his 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 jail sentence in another crime. And so it always crossed my mind, right? In my theory of, of the case, right, you have this TRC, auto body and electric. These are guys who are just like fencing stuff all the time. They're, you know, selling cocaine and they're like, oh, man, what happens if one of us goes to prison? And they're like, hey, remember that Miles guy? Like, why don't we? So get- he's, he breaks up a little bit, but he says right, that right? Miles Connor stole a Rembrandt from the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston in 1974 to negotiate himself a lesser prison sentence. Pretty remarkable. And then Ulrich kind of speculates that potentially that's why these guys from TRC Auto stole the paintings to kind of have it as a something you can use in case you need it. A bargaining chip, some leverage to um, to lower a sentence. Uh, the more we hear about Miles Connor, the more I just love that guy. I mean, he is a criminal, and we hear about him a lot more when we speak to Jenny Seiler in. Uh, in, in an upcoming episode, which is really fascinating. So I don't want to give away too much about Miles because we've already thrown out so many names right now and, and it's it's sort of overwhelming. But Miles is, uh, he really set the precedent for that type of criminal at that period of time in, in Boston. You guys make this, you know, argument in, in the Maura Murray, right? That maybe she doesn't want to be found, right? I mean, in this case, we have, like, we really just, we want that resolution. At the same time, though, there are all these other analogs, like, and this gets into a real rabbit hole, right? But just like so many things about the world that we really care about are kind of unknown. And I would argue one of the reasons that like Vermeer is this really cool painting is that it's unknown, right? There are these like weird subtexts to the whole thing. And if you start comparing the paintings, I mean, Rembrandt was like a fantastic, like mus, like really muscly painter, but the Vermeer, uh, and and uh, we can talk a little, bit, a little bit, but there are these like weird mysteries within the Vermeer, like his mother owned one of the paintings that he repainted in the painting and there's these like weird sexual and other subtext to it so i mean in other words could we argue and i'd be curious what you guys think that anything that's like masterful or great is to a degree unknown right like if you really know it eh, it's not so interesting it's anything that's sort of like unknown like like that sort of thing is is really ultimately what what grabs our attention if you look at each of the artworks that are stolen and just start to scratch at them each one of them even the finial actually turns out to be a it was a a replica made at the time but in itself you could argue actually is a fake so it's totally weird right and the other rembrandts have similar issues and the uh flink was deattributed shortly thereafter and you're just like wow you know is anything real um and yet at the same time we ask that question kind of you know uh Jokingly, you know, there's uh, these paintings are so crazy, crazy valuable. And you have like these influences of movies in the media where, um, you know, like Pierce Brosnan is going in with, you know, ducking, you know, putting baby powder out and ducking under the laser beams. And that's how you're supposed to like heist a museum. And then you read about this. Well, you know, I just get like you come in not knowing about it and you see the value on it. And then you read about it and you're like, really? These boneheads did this? Yeah, they weren't dancing around lasers. Yeah, these guys were, <laughs> yeah, these guys were literally like bulls in a china shop. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Empty Frames. 
a co-production of Crawl Space Media and Audio Boom. Original music by Jared Jensen and Kevin McLeod. Please learn more by going to EmptyFramesPodcast.com and CrawlSpacePodcast.com. Thank you very much for listening. Follow Empty Frames on Twitter at Empty underscore Frames. We're also on Facebook and Instagram as Empty Frames Podcast. We're back in two weeks and we talk to Jenny Seidler, co-author of the book The Art of the Heist, Confessions of a Master Thief. The other co-author, Miles J. Connor Jr. himself. This is what I always say about Miles in the book. I was not able to corroborate every single thing that Miles told me, but everything that I was able to corroborate proved to be true. Do you think he has any incentive to lie about these stories about Bobby Donati and David Houghton? No, absolutely not. When I spoke to him about it, it was definitely what he believed to be true, that they had taken the paintings. 